I think it's very enterprising of all the friends to come out at such short notice, and I apologize for that short notice. The next lecture in this series is that of Michael Turner, who is now head of conservation at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and he will be speaking on developing a preservation program in a large and ancient library like the Bodleian Library, and indeed developing a preservation program at the Bodleian Library, not simply like one, on Thursday, the 23rd of September at 6. And as the friends know, there's a massive schedule of lectures signed up for the rest of the year, so we hope to see you here often. Posted outside, since most of you have come in, is a reminder notice to those of you who have already received it and news for those of you who haven't, inviting all who read the sign to come to a reception of honoring Dr. Robert L. Leslie, who has made an annual commitment to buy films and the graphic arts for the school. There will be a party here and the usual food and drink and a chance to see Dr. Leslie on videotape. He did an eight he did an eight hour videotape for uh for Herb Johnson at RIT, uh, going into his life, uh, past, present, and future, and uh, everything else that he was interested in during the eight hours that the camera was directed towards him. We propose to show a very small part of this tomorrow, uh, but Doc Leslie is nothing if not interesting, I'm sure you'll all agree, and he is a great donor to causes, not only here now, but everywhere else in town. And I'm sure that if you are handy, uh, there aren't that many public monuments you can meet uh, and shake hands with and get an answer to. And Doc Leslie is certainly one of them. He's now 96, going on 97, uh, and going strong. He will probably outlive us all. I certainly hope so. Our lecture... I don't actually certainly hope so, but I certainly uh, <laughs> I certainly expect so. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, our lecturer tonight is no stranger to these halls. He's Ian Willison. Ian Willison is a graduate of the Peterhouse, Cambridge, and has a library degree as well from the University of London. His entire professional career has spent has been spent either at the British Museum Library or the British Library as we now call it. He is the editor of the massive, indeed gargantuan, 20th century volume of the New Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature and has had much to say about his forthcoming work being a George Orwell bibliography from this podium on other occasions, and I hope again in the future. And he has been lecturing extensively in this country and elsewhere in the past couple of years, in part practicing the chapters of two books, one to be published by the British Library and one, we hope, by the uh, Cambridge University Press on various aspects having to do with the history of libraries and in descriptive and historical bibliography. His topic tonight is the history of the book as a field of study, and those of you who have been around here for a while, find resonance in that topic because 
George Thomas Tansel gave a lecture with the same title at the University of North Carolina a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a Haynes lecture, and it was published later in the Times Literary Supplement and then published as a separate. Tom couldn't be here tonight. He's out of town. But he did write to say uh, that he was sorry to miss Willison's lecture tonight because it sounded like an interesting topic. As I'm sure it will be, since everything that Ian says is interesting, and here he is to say it. Ian Willison. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, as uh, Terry Bellinger has said, the title is the same as that used by uh, uh, Tom Tansell for his Haynes lecture. And what uh, Tom Tansell said then, and what I want to try to say now, are meant to form part of a continuing and exhaustive and urgent discussion of the matter of the history of the book as a field of study at the intellectual, at, sorry, at the international level. And this was begun at the Boston Rare Books and Manuscripts pre-conference in 1980, which some of you may have attended. Now, the discussion is a continuing one, and the next international meeting will be at the Research Library at Wolfenbüttel in Germany next May, with further meetings, possibly in Paris and Toronto, a year or so after that. But far more important, for it's not unknown for international discussions to become routine as such, and occasions for what the British call jollies, this discussion is meant to be exhaustive, and here I come to the main part of my paper, or perhaps I had better say at the outset, my thoughts, because this is a very developing matter, and we are, all of us, putting out very tentative ideas, and you must forgive me if my exposition is a little broken, and uh, I may have to stop and think what it is I'm about to say. I think the main point I want to start with is that what we are concerned with, if you'll forgive me being a little uh, schematic and sounding a bit pompous, is the recent progressive enlargement of traditional, in the English sense, historical bibliography to include the idea of quote, the world of the book and its history as a major independent variable that is indispensable for the understanding of history in general. And I hope to illuminate that, but that is fundamentally what I am trying to uh, establish. Um, perhaps it's I can do that best by referring to two recent years on which certain books appeared. The first is 1957-58. There were three, I think, very important books that appeared. The first, and perhaps the best well-known, is the book in French by Lucien Fèvre, and particularly by Henri-Jean Martin, called L'Apparition du Livre. And the second 
didn't appear as a book, but they were the Lyle Lectures by Stanley Morrison called Politics and Script. Now, these seem to me in retrospect to represent the first enlargement of historical bibliography by two people. Uh, I have to say that Lucien Febvre, as you probably know, died before this book by him and Martin appeared and was fundamentally the promoter of the book, which was basically written by Martin. Martin was in a librarian in the Bibliothèque Nationale in, uh, in Paris. Morrison, as I'm sure I need to remind you, was one of the senior members of the Bibliographical Society of London, um, not a, a, a strictly a librarian, but very much under the influence of British Museum's great figures, A.W. Pollard, and a friend of Graham Pollard, no relation come to that. These two books were an attempt to show that the traditional bibliographical study of books did illuminate general historical issues. I haven't time to really summarize them. I imagine many of this audience have read them, but the uh, Morrison, may I remind you, in politics and script, one of his main themes was to show how political authority could reinforce its, uh, itself in the minds uh, uh, of the citizens by using the uh, succession of um, uh, classic uh, ornament-type um, faces and he, many other things, but the idea that you could um, analyse the structure of political authority, amongst other things, by using, by pointing out the design in which its messages were was actually construed. Martin and Lucien Fer behind him was aiming to show that the uh, Renaissance, the Reformation, and in particular in Martin's case in his later books, but starting there, the Grand Siècle of the 17th century, again could be illuminated by the role played by the printed, printed book. One contribution to that book was this uh, introductory remarks. The book, this ferment, Le Livre se ferment. The third book to appear in 1957-58 is, I think, not so well known, though I trust it is becoming so, not by a librarian or bibliographer at all, but it was the first publication of a strange manuscript left behind by the poet Stéphane Malachmé. It's called Le Livre de Malachmé. And if you don't know it, I must commend it to your attention, particularly in the light of the uh, remarks that Tansel and I and others are trying to float. It's an extraordinary evocation of the idea of the book as a physical object independent of its content. Uh, it, it has some of the aspects of a late 19th century decadent uh, fascination with design, but it goes far more than that. Uh, an attempt to project the ideal number of pages, the book in its essence should have the ideal number of readers it should have, its ideal price 
its ideal location for reading. It's a quite remarkable book and is beginning now to be used. The latest use I can think of is by D.F. McKenzie in a paper I will refer to later on as a sort of control over one's thoughts about the world of the book. Malame earlier had become quite famous, quite apart from his poetry, by aphoristic remarks that tout au monde aboutir à un livre, everything in the world is, event, is meant to eventuate in a book. In other words, that the poet uh, somehow in his writing or the writer in his books summarizes the whole process of history. And there are two things, I think, to be said about this third book to appear in 57-58. First of all, in, I think it begun to be seen now in retrospect that it represents the end of a long sequence of um, awareness by writers in general, starting in the 18th century of the book as somehow an independent entity with which the writer has to professionally engage. I'm thinking basically of in the 18th century of, of the three I hardly ever use the word keynotes, but the three people who in England, France and Germany gave an identity to the profession of authorship in England would be obviously Samuel Johnson and his preoccupation with the professional side of bookmaking. And we in the British Museum Library speak with some feeling about this because uh, his advice for, uh, to the then librarian of George III on the creation of the King's Library, is, uh, which I've just recently read, and again I commend it to your attention, is extraordinarily literate um, in matters of bibliography and collection development and it comes so easily from his pen and it's well known uh, Johnson biography and Boswell and so on and so forth of his uh, living with publishers an easy uh, uh, base of easy relationship in France Voltaire again has a remark if he lived might have regretted but it was uh, quoted uh, when the uh, Bibliothèque uh, Royale was uh, temporarily um, incapacitated by the revolutionaries, but they did this under the Voltairean slogan, tout l'univers connu n'est gouverné que par des livres, or uh, the whole of the known universe is governed simply by books. And then in Germany, in many ways, one of the uh, more interesting, the uh, uh, interest of Leibniz, Again, beginning uh, the uh, tradition of authorship in many modern German authorship, uh, his preoccupation with um, various problematic aspects of the uh, world of the book uh, and the need to organise it, Leibniz being of the three, the only uh, professional librarian for part of his career. And to some extent, I think it's useful to, when one's considering the uh, relationship between uh, librarians and bibliographers a tradition of bibliographical study which is of course extremely old to realise there is this counterpoint in general authors uh, amongst the uh, um, men of letters <coughs> excuse me um, 
And Mallarmé's Le Livre de Mallarmé, I find it is somehow a posing of the question in the most total way that had appeared in that particular tradition. So I would say the 57-58 was, in a sense, the end of the isolation of the tradition of uh, 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 study of the, of the book by people, either librarians or um, uh, bibliographers, and beginning to bring all this uh, uh, tradition out towards a general audience. Then the next year is 1962, and I think the two books that uh, uh, signify most, from our point of view in that year, were the most famous one, I suppose, is McLuhan's uh, The Gutenberg Galaxy. But another book, in many ways, about as daft as McLuhan, but in many ways by no means, uh, is Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Perhaps daft is a, not a word I should use at all, but uh, aggressive, um, causing more confusion than perhaps uh, it should have done. Now, both are, as again, I'm sure I need hardly remind you in the case of the Gutenberg Galaxy, uh, taking this idea of the world uh, of the book and uh, trying to account for an immense range of, of, of uh, human experience in terms, in his case, of course, particularly printing. And in Kuhn's uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, the famous idea of the paradigm that determines the difference between normal science and revolutionary science. And the structure of paradigms is very much based on the dominance of textbooks as opposed to revolutionary papers in natural science. But from my point of view, the, the, the great point here is that the difference between 57.8 and 1962, it is for the first time the scholar and the critic and not the librarian or the bibliographer who is moving into the centre of the stage in the study of the world of the book. And from 62, you get a growing number of books written by uh, historians and critics uh, taking far more cognizance of the importance of the book as a physical object, publishing and so on and so forth, as a main factor in the general themes they are addressing themselves to. Um, I mean, there are very many indeed, uh, uh, um, and I won't mention, but of course I am mentioning Robert Darnton's uh, the, the, the Business of Enlightenment, his study of the encyclopedia. But the two that I suppose in England, uh, not that Danton isn't very well respected, but the two that caused a, a, a sort of minor McLuhan-type shock of recognition were first uh, E.J. Kenney's book on the classical text, the aspects of editing the age of the printed book in 1974, Kenney being, well now, a, a professor of Latin at Cambridge, though this was in fact the Sather Lectures in California, but the one that, uh, since it was Cambridge University Press that published it, um, has caused, uh, or figures most on the horizon, is uh, Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, Communications and Cultural Transformation in Early Modern Europe in 1979. Now, I don't want to be drawn into the sort of controversy or that's going on or the uh, 
rather mixed reception that book got. Um, it, it's, uh, it's an important book. It was, in a way, misconceived by the publisher as much as by the author, I think, as a monograph. Uh, it is repetitive. It's... Uh, various reviewers who are still trying to review it complain bitterly about the, the hard slog of uh, just reading it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I, I think it's a, it's a, a worthy an important book. It should, it should have been half the length in that it's unlike the, what appear to be the intellectually and technically more hard-nosed books done by the French, in particular by Martin and his pupils, it does go much more ambitiously than they do and more effectively into um, matters of high culture. Um, she, as, again, those who've read the book, no reminding, is concerned to produce, uh, if not a, uh, a reinterpretation, at least a view about certain important aspects of the High Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution. And in a sense, it published in 1979, as one looks back, it, it in a strange way, with McLuhan, who, uh, as you remember her preface, she says, provoked her into doing this, it, it, it does. I think establish the matter, in a medieval sense, of um, the history of the book as a uh, major theme to be considered um, in the most uh, sort of persuasive and in a way that you, one can't any longer ignore it. It is making claims uh, for the, a study of the. Uh, of, printed book that can't be ignored, though it does, it doesn't, it uh, um, uh, to do it itself, itself justice. Now, all this, I'm afraid, and I have, my watch has stopped, I don't propose to go on too long, this is rather old hat, I imagine, to this audience, but I want to just suggest that there is a level of reflection about the world of the book as a field of study that hasn't yet been addressed except, so far as I am aware, in one book only. The level I'm talking about is the philosophical level in the sense of answering the question if the book is so important historically what is there in its nature or in its effect that really uh, incontrovertibly and patently explains this to be the case it, even with Elizabeth Eisenstein she does have the effect of assuming uh, that um, uh, the, the, the importance doesn't have to be Argued, it's most of the books, even though they are by uh, no longer by librarians and bibliographers, are somewhat negative, that uh, and slightly bullying. That uh, there are things here that you, the reader, should have known about, and I don't need to explain to you why it's important. It is obviously so. This, I think, is the stage at which our reflection on the history of the book has reached, and we do need a a. a as general 
and, to use my opening adjective, exhaustive, a rationale of the, uh, so, to use an old phrase of, I think it was John Crow Ransom, the ontological status of the book. Um, absolutely, clearly, as clearly stated as possible. Now, the only book I know that has attempted this in, in a slightly uh, sideways-on way, but nevertheless I think truly so, is Karl Popper's book on objective knowledge and evolutionary approach, published in 1972. And though one doesn't like singling out just one book to make a, a major point, um, and as the book has not, so far again as I am aware, received any discussion in the circles concerned with the uh, history of the book, or indeed in cultural history, come to that, uh, Popper, as you may know, is engaged basically in a battle with uh, Thomas Kuhn about uh, uh, the criticism of scientific knowledge, the Kuhn-Popper debates, from which, incidentally, this book did emerge. So the best thing I think I can do and then pass on to the implications of this as I see it, is to just read out, if I may, in a rather bald way, about five quotations from Popper's objective knowledge. This it comes under his description of what he calls World Three. I just anticipate by, uh, by saying that what he means by the first world is the physical world, uh, the world out there. The second world is the world of the mind, reflecting on the world out there. And the third world is what I shall now give his description of, objective knowledge. Examples of objective knowledge are theories published in journals and books and stored in libraries. From this, his second thesis, the third world, the world of uh, objective knowledge, theories published in journals and books, is largely autonomous, even though we constantly act upon it and are acted upon by it. A book remains a book, a certain type of product, even if it is never read. Third thesis... We're moving on to uh, a phrase that comes at the end of my chain of quotations, the, uh, the problem, matter of the problem situation. The third thesis is this. A large part of the objective third world of actual and potential theories and books and arguments arises as an unintended byproduct of the actually produced books and arguments. And the third was not only autonomous, it's somehow in a slightly perverse or unpredictable way a creative. Fourth thesis, all our actions in the first world, the world of the, uh, the, the physical world, are influenced by our second world, the world of our own mind. The, the grasp of that mind of the third world of the products of the human mind. In other words, all our actions of the first world are influenced by our second world's grasp of the third world. Fourth thesis, 
which is now moving towards the um, uh, uh, having said this what does it mean from the point of view of technical scholarship how do we use this uh, truth if truth it be fourth thesis is it is the understanding of objects belonging to the third world which constitutes the central problem of the humanities as opposed to the natural sciences and two glosses on that uh, in explanation taking the example of the history of science the history of science should be treated not as a history of theories but as a history of this is the key word problem situations and their modification in other words what McLuhan would say that the medium is the message the medium as opposed to the message is the message because it is problematic there is a problematic aspect to the book that needs independent study. It isn't a clear window through which you see the uh, matter of thought simply and transparently. And a final gloss, so far as the humanities are concerned, history of science being construed by him as part of the humanities, only a man who has some real understanding of its history, the history of its problem situations, can understand science. In other words, Popper is doing an end run around positivism and the traditional predominance, in a sense, of natural science. But I say you can't even do natural science unless you are a humanistic historian of it. Now, I can do no more than put that as a, a thesis with which I happen to agree. To argue it out would take far more time than we have at our disposal and one would have to argue it in terms of epistemology and the, uh, the classic arguments about uh, knowledge David Hume, Hegel and, and so on um, which I don't think is profitable here and now. Can we assume that uh, that is thesis and that is data because what I want to discuss if, if that is so what about the history of the book as a field of study an actual ongoing uh, concern of professional bibliographers and librarians and library administrators as well as scholars and critics I, let me try to review uh, in a rather casual way because as I have said at the outset this is part of an ongoing process of consideration and I don't claim this to be in any way exhaustive though I hope it is illuminating if you take this idea of the world of the book world three in Popper's uh, uh, description um, in a timeless way, in a what the structures would call a synchronic way, um, can regardless of when the examples happened, can one, so to speak, produce a, a typology of problem situations using Popper's phrase? Let me start with what is the easiest or the most familiar, which is the book in the Malachmean sense of the book and the individual author the sort of m m question that was a subject of 
18th century literary anecdotes. Two aspects. First of all, reading. Now, it does seem to be the case that uh, the, the increased study of the reading of famous authors hates life of George Eliot is the one that's to spring to my mind um, even more powerful but not as yet worked out would be George Wally's study of the marginal notes made by Coleridge in his own books that are largely in the British Museum Library as a technical and methodological exercise I commend to your attention George Wally's Vols 1 and I think Vols 2 of the Marginalia of Coleridge in the Princeton Bollingen uh, Coleridge edition which I propose to try to review from this point of view in other that, that a author is and can be shown to be in a systematic way determined very considerably as far as his uh, profession as an author is concerned by his reading and that therefore it is important to subject this to systematic study and of course one's known uh, it is part of literary biography ever since it began that an author reads books but to try to uh, so to speak, structure the study of that would seem to follow from this uh, idea of the autonomy of the world of the book and its active effect on a person such as the author involved in that world. I am interested in the case of Marx and Lenin. Again, work is only beginning to be done on I hope to do more myself because, as I again have no need to remind you, they were, in a way, two of our most famous readers, and Lenin in particular was a very, very able reader in the BM. Whenever I'm in London, he said, I work in the British Museum. Now, that wasn't just... Uh, the, the reading in institutional libraries, in the case of Lenin, was extraordinarily, it would seem... Uh, uh, a major determinant in his development as a intellectual politician. Marx, no need to argue that, and this remark must have been made when the boils were beginning to play him up a bit, said, I am a machine condemned to devour books and then throw them in a changed form on the dunghill of history. Uh, and I think McClellan's life of Marx benefits greatly and Prawer's study of Marx and world literature benefit greatly in their realism by, by teasing out uh, uh, their lives in terms, in part, of their reading, of Marx's reading. Again, to go right to the other end of the spectrum, and it's a matter I will return to at the end of this section, more attention is being paid now to the concept of the Lectio Divina, divine reading, godly reading of the medieval monk. And I think very 
attractive and for librarians and for historians, very important book is a book by the Benedictine Jean Leclerc called The Love of Letters and the Desire for God, or The Desire for God and the Love of Letters, which is a study pivoting around this uh, uh, idea of the contemplative importance of a certain very committed type of technical reading of books. So far reading. Then what is more well known, uh, I, I think I must say, uh, the effect of the interacting with the world of the book on an author's form of writing, he, he, the actual genre he, he employs. Uh, the famous case is the um, rise of the novel, but uh, you remember in Ian Watts' book, the fact that Richardson was a printer and Defoe worked very closely with the recently uh, liberated, uh, if that's quite true, uh, London book trade, at least compared to the 17th century, the search for uh, profitable genres that will tap the emerging reading public. And Ian Watt, in part, has shown that the rise of the novel as a genre was, in part at least, uh, the, the um, creation of that problem situation, how to um, find saleable copy. But you can, and I would say the second well-known case, it would be uh, the study of Dickens and serial publications, largely due to the work of Catherine Tillotson and John Butt, that uh, certain very important features of uh, Dickens' novels can be shown to relate to the pressures of serial publication, the death of Paul Dombey, it is said being introduced simply because sales of the previous part hadn't gone very well and he knew he had to um, get, recapture the attention of the audience and there is the uh, I think first rate book uh, uh, I'm afraid the author's schedule on Dickens and his publishers can anybody help me with the author I haven't got it down here um, but you can e extend this much more widely um, one of the things I'm going to have to say and recapitulate in a moment is uh, um, the uh, necessary limitation, but limitation of much of one's evidence coming from the printed book and history of the printed book, but the beginnings of exploring these themes in the, uh, in the medieval manuscript book um, period, there is some evidence deal of evidence that the fact that for technical and economic reasons the medieval manuscript book trade largely through cost of paper and cost of um, copy by copy scribal writing tended to have the florilegium the anthology as a major mode in the trade if trade you can call it can be shown to have uh, fairly cons uh, essential influence on the fact that Chaucer's great work is in the Canterbury Tales is in in many respects a sort of florilegium. It had become an established mode and could be used by a major author to further uh, explore his literary establish his literary purposes. And one could go on, but. Uh, let's move on from that. 
that's the book and the individual author. Then we move to the book and the community. Now, first of all, the scholarly and scientific community, the history of that being illuminated by the manipulation, the use of uh, bibliographical evidence. Well, Kenny, in the printed uh, text, is able to point to establish that the commercial pressures in the, in the, uh, in the introduction of printing into Italy, in Schweinheim and Panarts in particular, required them to speed up uh, the production of reprinted classical texts to the disadvantage of the quality of the scholarly editing and the bishop Andre Bussi was the man that Kenny pillories as collaborating with this commercialization of scholarship the answer to that and it is quite a controversy is that uh, this was a perfectly reasonable price to pay for getting uh, something far better than the previous manuscript text, at least available. And then the whole of Eisenstein's book, as I have already said, is an attempt to show how the 16th and 17th and early 18th century Republic of Letters, again, can be pivoted on that which the printed book, as opposed to the manuscript book, enabled scholars and scientists and, and their publishers to do, given the uh, uh, technological, vastly improved technological base of the production of books. We move more generally up to the cultural political community. Now here, which is as a national librarian, is what I am more concerned with. There is much less finished work than in the case of uh, uh, Tillotson and Butt or Eisenstein. But a very important concept, which was first established uh, in technical history writing by Friedrich Meinecke, called the cultural nation, as something distinct, though linked to the political nation. And Meinecke, in his discussion of the rise of the German Second Reich in the 1870s, and going back to the effect of the French Revolution, wrote this book called uh, Cosmopolitanism and the National State, the Nationalstadt. And what he's trying to say is that uh, um, you can't account for the various uh, great hiccups in German history on a strictly political, on a purely political basis. You have to bear in mind that Germany in particular was a far more a cultural nation than a political nation at the time of the revolution. But, uh, that the attempt to deal with this by Bismarck is what produced some of the distortions in German history. And he goes on to say, and this is my point, that the cultural nation is that which is constituted more by primarily in Germany university professors, but also by publishers and readers and libraries. And if you can see the cultural nation having an independent dynamic in history, or at least partially independent dynamic in history, then some of the structural features that explain it, such as the world of the book, become important in writing that history. And one might, and this is a thing that I'm at the moment preoccupied with, consider 
what if you remember William McNeil's book on the rise of the West, the Western ecumene, he calls it, the westernization of the world, has been more a matter of, shall we say, missionary publishing and the reaction to, in a sense, the world of the English book or the French book, uh, the two most famous cases, let's take the English book, on the part of progressively emerging ex-colonies than of straight politics. Mutiny makes much more sense of the rise of the Congress Party. It was overtly, of course, political, but that which gave it its morale and its sense of direction and its very ambiguous relation to English culture as opposed to English political parties was very much this having absorbed the, the, uh, what the missionary publishers have been doing before the mutiny, particularly those associated with the uh, East India Company and the Church Missionary Society and the Baptist Missionary Society, um, that this somehow gave them in, an in, had an indelible effect and their reaction to uh, the mother country was always one not of independence or, but always of semi-independence and Indian writing now can be better understood in the light of this if iron in the soul if you like likewise in Africa perhaps more clear cut the take the Nigerian novel which because it's fairly recent and very very abundant is more attractive Achebe's Things Fall Apart um, perhaps the most famous example there you can see the effect of missionary education basically mediated through their printing. I, he obviously had read Yeats, that's where the title comes from, and it had come to him, not because he met William Butler Yeats, but because he had read him and inwardly digested him, as Coleridge digested Kant's note. Uh, the, but the, uh, the result effect on his prose style and on his identity as a writer is a matter of semi-independence. In other words, though Nigeria is politically independent uh, from the United Kingdom, this, there, there's a cultural ecumene in McNeil's phrase which is effective and can be grasped more than somewhat by the role of the book that the book has played in these cultural nations or cultural supernations. And then finally, the sort of total community of religious or political uh, parties in the sense of the more total political parties, I mean Marxism, or, or any other party that claims to be more than simply a, a matter of arranging uh, affairs on the short term. There does seem, as I have already hinted uh, 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 about authorship, uh, the role of reading in, for example, the Benedictines uh, in the early Middle Ages, which, again, um, one must, I think, take the argument as proven that the, they were the great mediators of the classical tradition from ancient Greece and Rome to of Charlemagne and the Renaissance of the 12th century. The importance that I've already talked about of the Lectio Divina um, is fundamental 
And you can almost, so I'd like to pause before I go on to the conclusion, almost see this as one limiting case. Let us take end of the 7th century, let us take Northumbria, let us take Bede and the Lindisfarne Gospels. One has to be careful not to be overwhelmed by the tremendously strong identity of Bede, as one reads him now, at least relative to other writing of the period, and more than that, he's a very powerful writer on the one hand, and the strong personality, so to speak, of the Lindisfarne Gospels uh, on the other. If you add to that, that uh, may I just remind you that they, uh, they were both within 30 years of each other, though Bede was at Jarrow, not at Lindisfarne, and I think it's fair to assume they're part of a unified world. I don't think we need to argue that. Add to that the tremendous, uh, uh, almost sensuous milieu of Gregorian chant, one somehow, I think, possible to see in case of a very statistically limited, and from a quantity point of view, limited uh, location, situation, in Popper's sense, um, a sort of whole world of classical tradition coming together into one point before it broadens out again. And we have no time to an explication of the aesthetic and the textual aspect of the Lindisfarne Gospels, but I hope I need say no more than as a piece of bookmaking and as a piece of book design, uh, it is one of the most powerful objects I think we have in the heritage. And it was so, I think, because it could be reasonably felt that all that mattered in the way of wisdom and all you needed to uh, eat to run not only a contemplative life but a contemplative life but also a uh, secular life the Benedictine order was after all a great instrument of secular reconstruction of Europe as well as of spiritual uh, continuity could be contained almost in one book plus its readers such as Bede who then, from that, wrote their histories and, and on that base, uh, broadened the reconstruction of European intellectual life. In other words, you have here, uh, it does need more time to work this out, a case of the world of the book being manipulated by the reader and the writer, um, rather than being can one say that, though, manipulated by it? This is the ambiguity of Lectio Divina. Is it uh, the God inspiring the reader or the reader appropriating and manipulating the God? On the one hand, uh, a case where the world of the book may be said to have operated at, at, at the most uh, elevated and historically most simple uh, and effective case uh, level, uh, uh, level. Right, the other end would be the Communist Party. I think again of Marx and Lenin. And if one can be called a matter of lectio divina, I suppose the other can be called a matter of lectio damnata. Da condemned reading. You remember a machine condemned to devour books and then throw them in a changed form on the dunghill of history. 
But the point is that um, though this needs more study, Lenin's, and to some extent Marx's, particularly Lenin's preoccupation with books in libraries, the Popperian World Free in its simplest uh, definition, um, can be shown to have been a factor, a factor, in some pretty major and, uh, what should we say, keynoting historical events of our contemporary world. Now, that, I think, would be the sorts of examples and considerations one would need, one would use to establish uh, the most exhaustive aspect of the uh, history of the book as a field of study. The pushing it to its furthest bounds. I would like, but I have not time to elaborate on, if that is so, how should the technical discipline of the history of the book be conceived. And this is so up in the air at the moment that I think I would in fact be simply reproducing some remarks I myself made partly in print some time ago I see no point in that because I myself am not um, convinced of their ultimate validity but may I just say that it, whatever, whichever way it goes it does have to the history of the book and this is where the French are so strong because I think they grasp this very clearly whereas in the English speaking world uh, we haven't yet they to that extent are more professional in their actual writing of the history of the book than we yet are and the classic example I think is the second book by Henri Jean Martin called Livre Pouvoir et Société à Paris the 17th siècle the book Political Authority and Society in Paris in the 17th century it's an attempt to uh, uh, demonstrate the importance of uh, the book trade and its widest implications for the base of the uh, Grand Louis XIV of the Grand Siècle. Now, he's able to do that, I think, because he identifies a limited number of very major factors and then, quite ruthlessly, on a statistical basis, follows them, them out in actual historical fact and produces an exhaustive explanation as to how it works. And the three factors might be said to be, first of all, the typographical and book design aspect of the book. The book as a handicraft, um, in almost the William Morris sense of it, uh, that which the, mise en, the designer of the mise en page, the printer, uh, worked 
at, instant by instant, book by book. The second, however, is clear recognition that that by itself is almost disembodied from the historical point of view. If the book is more as it is than a mere piece of handicraft, it does involve technology, it does involve capital, it does therefore involve in some form profit on capital. There, it has a very important market aspect and it so happens in the 8th, 17th century this was a mercantilist controlled market because, as Martin then goes on to say, the third factor is the cultural political factor that it isn't a, in a sense a stable market uh, the reader is of the consumers the most one of the most unpredictable, the most volatile why is he volatile? Because he's also a citizen subject to taste and to authority or to revolution therefore you have to have, particularly in the 17th century if you're trying to control the dynamism of these three factors some sort of total control which was the system of the regulation of the book trade used by Louis XIV and in particular by his uh, directors of the trade towards the end of the century Pontchartrain and the Abbe Jean-Paul Bignon who amongst other things were the first great reformers of the Royal Library as an agency in the controlling not necessarily in the sense of censorship but the rationalisation of the book trade and you can follow the operation of these three factors in different permutations and combinations um, in the uh, 19th century uh, the, for example the uh, source of employment of capital intensive technology was not through privilege as it was in the 17th century but through constantly enlarging the reading public as a market hence the hidden imperialism of the classic 19th century British London book trade that George Smith issued part of George Eliot and others eventual publisher of the Dictionary of National Biography was not surprisingly a member of the, of the Indian import and export trade and that if not he then Collins in Scotland would be dumping books in the less perfectly organised markets of India, Australia and New Zealand and so on. There is a hidden imperialist aspect to what appears to be a free trade in books that the readers are more stable in the 19th century only because they are the upper crust the users of moody circulating libraries the readers of the Edinburgh Review the readers of the Times who are involved in the political process of Whig and then liberal reform politics that what this does not did not at the time take into account was the submerged millions of readers who eventually were um, taken out of this uh, happy almost uh, point of rest in the history of the book of the 19th century great novelists like Dickens and George Eliot and uh, working with publishers 
selling books and getting a, a, a good professional living from them. We're out of this uh, rather privileged system and potentially waiting to be seduced by the mass newspaper, which one might say was the revenge taken by the ex-colonies, particularly the United States, on the mother country that Hearst produces Northcliffe and a lot of our current cultural woes emerge from that. I think that the use of those three factors as a means of analysing what Popper calls problem situations is what should be done uh, and we will see uh, whether this in fact proves to be the case. Um, the only way it seems to me that the history of the book at this uh, exhaustive uh, total level can move as a as a piece of technical scholarship, uh, develop its conventions and traditions, which is what I want to end up by talking about, uh, must be that it has a firm center in a relatively simple, though one hopes sort of in a Newtonian way classic because of its simplicity, that it has its simple laws of motion and that it can keep a steady base um, that will enable it to progress as, as a discipline. So, to conclude, what might be the effect of the incorporation of this, shall we call it, new... I hesitate to use that. It's being used so to death at the moment. Uh, this new historical bibliography, Histoire du Livre, shall we say, into the humanities in general, into the Philologische Wissenschaften, as the Germans would call it. Well, the first and most clear example before our very eyes is the change in direction in strict textual criticism. And that's no accident because it's in textual criticism, by which I mean uh, 40 or 50 years ago the effect of Walter Grigg, more recently Freds and Bowers and so on, has been the classic interface between bibliography and scholarship. What created the Bibliographical Society of London in many, many ways. Now, those of you who have read Tom Tansell's Haynes Lecture and certainly who have read his collected papers and his continuing essays and studies in bibliography must be aware that uh, the revision in the old Marxist-Leninist sense, revisionism in textual criticism is with us. Exemplified, I think, so far as UK is concerned by D.F. Mackenzie and the various papers he is producing on the basis of his edition of Congreve, the most recent, which has just appeared, entitled Typography and Meaning, in which he pleads for a textual criticism, quote, which would embrace the history of the book, unquote, the book being conceived as, and I quote, a comprehensive rhetorical structure articulating an extremely complex set of relationships between author, bookseller, printer and reader in specific and definable historical contexts. In other words, the accidentals, in Greg's phrase, become, which relate to the specific and definable historical context in which the author is interacting with the printer or the compositor. Um, the accidentals are as important for this rhetorical structure 
point about typography and meaning is that Congreve's meaning was in more than somewhat projected to the reader by the layout on the page. And there are, I haven't time to exemplify that. Accidentals, in other words, become as important for the editor as what Greg called the strictly message substantives. From this, this idea of a comprehensive rhetorical structure articulating extremely complex sets of relationships between author and so on, you might say that literary criticism uh, in the hands of people like Northrop Fry and particularly Wayne Booth, the use of the idea of rhetoric as opposed to classical normative and evaluative literary criticism that uh, uh, the text isn't altogether simply what it means as you read it. It is a rhetorical uh, strategy that's being presented to you um, by through what Fry, if you remember, calls in part the radical of presentation, i.e. print. Thirdly, I think, again, I, in the case of Orwell, I'm working on the effect of the new historical bibliography on literary biography and literary history. That if you ignore the preoccupation of an author with the problem situation, Popper's words, of his, the writing and the publishing of his books, you tend not to be able to account for certain very conspicuous, almost dysfunctional aspects of his life. For example, the most recent case, and it's been well done now by Michael Milgate, is Hardy. Whereas Hardy's, in a way, gross mistreatment from a normal citizen's point of view of his first wife can be shown to be much more a matter of upward social mobility, uh, which his wife could not share, that came to him as an extraordinary successful man of letters. And in the context of late 19th century publishing, uh, Macmillan, as he joined Macmillan and left his earlier publishers, an elitist publisher dating from the 1850s in origin, this upward social mobility became absolutely a compulsive necessity in the case of Hardy, and it did lead to him not mistreating his first wife uh, and other people, but simply that the one thing that he had to concentrate on if he was going to be a professional writer and write was to address himself to the demands of that particular problem situation. Um, Melville is another famous case because of the essays by William Charvat on these matters, that Melville was so at odds with the, 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 the problem situation of publishing on a recently ex-frontier um, scene of uh, America in the 1840s and 1850s, where Harper's, his publishers, were absolutely determined in order to survive uh, international copyright being what it was not was, to um, produce absolutely as much compulsive readability as they could, but Melville um, was found himself more and more alienated from this. He went along with it in the early novels, but if you read Charvat's essays and studies in bibliography, 
it seems to be absolutely beautifully made clear that uh, the, the Melville dilemma um, is very much explicable in terms of the technical problem situation of the complex set of relationships between author, bookseller, printer and reader in specific and definable historical context to take uh, McKenzie's remarks. And I again commend, I think it's a great tragedy that Charvet died, but his collect, the papers collected by Broccoli um, have an introduction by uh, Howard Mumford Jones, making the point that literary history, if it doesn't absorb these uh, perspectives from the history of the book, is just not history. That uh, uh, literary history is a succession of problem situations, so to speak, uh, it, uh, uh, such as uh, I've I suggested. Then there's a history of scholarship and science. Well, it's not uh, Eisenstein, I think. Um, deals with that, that in other words you will get a historiography of scholarship and science we're much more concerned with what she calls cultural transformations uh, than has traditionally been the case and one might look at the contrast there will be between Sir John Sands' history of classical scholarship and the replacement for Sands at the Cambridge University Press are getting Kenny to uh, edit and produce in a year or so's time and finally, general political history um, this may sound a little too parochial, I can only speak from the cases I know, but I think it is still the case that the writing of history in England is only just emerging from the effect of Sir Lewis Namier and what has been called the structuralist uh, and non-narrative uh, uh, um, approach to the writing of history, particularly in the 18th century. That is to say... Uh, non-narrative and non-intellectual that what matter of specific interest which you demonstrate by looking at the private uh, accounts of the bribery by the treasury of various backbench MPs and the structure of politics and uh, uh, the uh, accession of George III is basically an exercise in that structural analysis. Now the revisionism uh, that's been going on since Namier uh, particularly led by Herbert Butterfield, who taught me, um, is an attempt to reintroduce the, um, what he calls the mental component into uh, the sort of substance of what the historian analyzes. A party, as he says, party as a mental as well as a material phenomenon. And two or three of Butterfield's uh, most able pupils have, in, in almost a taunting way, um, written books um, almost excessively emphasising the importance of pamphleteering and political controversy particularly John Brewer whose book is entitled Party Ideology and Popular Politics at the Accession, accession of George III it's a parody of the structure of politics at the accession of George III and near, uh, which is a, basically about the Wilkes uh, uh, um, uh, campaign of pamphleteering and the, the, the uh, use of evidence of the uh, uh, frequency and, and uh, other bibliographical aspects of the uh, Wilkes um, uh, use of pamphlets but more specifically because it's even more recent and happens to affect my own library is the work by Geoffrey Holmes and W.A. Speck on the uh, 
politics of the reign of Queen Anne, and in particular the trial of Dr. Sacheverell. And Holmes's book on the called The Trial of Dr. Sacheverell, I think, is an almost classic example, a very narrow canvas, of the use of strict bibliographical analysis of the, the, bare, the concealed reissues of the various pamphlets, their presumed printing numbers, therefore the degree both of their circulation and of their phasing, the political strategy you can deduce from the evidence of the reprintings, in which, uh, as, as in further work, they have been using the 18th century short title catalogue, currently underway in the British Library. Of course, the main point I now will finish is that, from our point of view, the history of the book is a field of study in, at this exhaustive level does require an immense bibliographical infrastructure. I talked about the continuity of the Tansel and other people's thinking. I talked about the exhaustiveness. Let me conclude with the urgency of it. This is a matter in a period of recession, first place, and equally important of what appears to be loss of interest and confidence in research by politicians and general administrators. A matter almost a crisis because the resources we are easily able to summon in the past are both contracting it is not now so easy to assume that you presented a bill of goods to a university administrator or indeed a department of education and because of the immediate post-war enthusiasm for enlightenment or whatever it was, money was found. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there is the vastly increased cost of this bibliographical infrastructure. As, for example, it must go machine-readable in order to be easily manipulated not only machine readable, it must also develop much more, many more points of access of a subject nature which require expensive programming and more searches through the files to reveal various what Veneva Bush called associative trails that you can't predict but which will produce the evidence are more likely, I should say, to produce the evidence you are looking for. The cost of repeated searches, the increase in the unit cost of the, of the bibliographical infrastructure is very much with us. Therefore, we must, it seems to me, the only thing we can do, therefore we must, is on the one hand bring the interests of research critics, scholars, the historians I've been talking about, the textual critics on the one hand, and of research librarians on the other, into some sort of effective conjunction to demonstrate that this is one of the few things 
needful in Matthew Arnold's phrase. And one of the purposes of this sequence of discussions, which does involve not only library administrators such as myself, but bibliographers and scholars, is to try to effect this conjunction, or at least to learn how to effect it uh, at the various uh, important political points of uh, the pressure that we have access to. And one of the elements, I speak now as a librarian, that is a Kantian categorical imperative, I think, is that it is this product from a bibliographical infrastructure, the basic provides, in the first instance, for the history of the book conceived in this total way, which in turn is one of the main means of illuminating Karl Popper's problem situations and grasping world three. It is this that provides the ultimate objective for the world information order of machine-readable cataloging and information transfer and so on and so forth, provides the ultimate objective, not the immediate objective, the ultimate objective for a world information order that is, in a way, fortunately, emerging whether we like it or not. Thank you.